Welcome to the Star Love Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Beck, the Oracle in New Orleans, founder of Inner Makeup Astrology. To learn more about what I do, visit innermakeup.net. And today, I'm excited to welcome Amelia Earhart. Amelia is a choreographer, dancer, and an astrologer working in Toronto. Amelia has shown work across Canada and has been supported through residencies internationally. As an astrologer, Amelia recently concluded two years of private study with Toronto-based astrologer Julia Beyer, who has over 30 years' experience as an astrologer and tarot reader. Across all mediums, Amelia's work has to do with the possibilities and limitations of the structures we exist and work inside of. And we'll get into that. That's a very interesting way to put a lot of the work that you do, and I'm really excited to dive into that. And also, you are a Sagittarius sun, Cancer rising, (laughs) and Aquarius moon. So, you know, I'm, I'm sure many of you will know, but the rising signs, of course, very important in astrology. So your moon becomes very important. And actually, your Aquarius moon, as you've put a little bit on Instagram uh, page, uh, which is so, the celebrity element of um, <laughs> your moon being Aquarius. Uh-huh. So we can that a little bit, uh, which will be will be that that's but you all have to wait. We, we're going to go through the serious stuff. Well, hopefully we can, they don't have to be mutually exclusive. We can have some serious fun, but we'll talk about Brittany and Riri towards the end. Uh, Cause you, you know, I was looking at your stuff. You have some interesting takes on that. So Amelia, Amelia, welcome. Thanks for coming. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to chat with you. Okay. I have to ask. So how do you feel about the famous, although, you know, we, maybe you're coming into fame, but Amelia, the, the famous Amelia Earhart. <laughs> Well, obviously, I think she's iconic. Um, I've always been quite interested in her. Um, the story of how I came to, I, everybody always wants to know, um, the story of how I came to have her name um, is that it was done on purpose. Uh, mm-hmm. My mother and father met kind of later in life, um, and I don't think either of them were really expecting to have kids at that point. So one day I was, when I was about 21 and I started using the name, I used to go by an abbreviation. I used to go by Amy. Mm. And then I started, and my family still calls me Amy, but I started using Amelia professionally when I was 21. And it meant that I had to have this conversation a lot more often, which I now do have <laughs> about once a week. But uh, I, I remember this one day I was out sitting on the, my parents' back porch with them and I was having a beer. And I said to my mom, mom, why did you do this to me? And she said, it was your father's idea. Ask your father. And I said, my, my dad has a real sense of humor. And I said, dad, why did you do this? And he was like, I thought it was funny. And I turned back to my mother and I said, mom, why did you let him do that? And she said, well, to be honest, I didn't know him very well at the time. And I wasn't sure if he was joking. Oh my God. <laughs> and it's turned out since then, my dad admitted that he always wanted to have a daughter named Amelia Earhart because he just thought that she was so cool. Mm. Well, that's your parents, but do you find any affinity with her? I mean, you said, you know, of course she's iconic, but do you identify with her in any way? Or you're, you know, obviously it seems like you're running with it a little bit, but. Yeah, I sort of have no choice but to. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I, at one point I had a similar haircut to her. Mm. Um, I don't love flying, that's for sure. But I definitely, am, um, you know, I'm somebody who takes risks and I'm somebody who it's hard to tell me when I can or can't do something. Mm. Well, which is very Sagittarius Sun. Uh, yes. So that, yeah. So that that's the will pulsating through you. Uh, and just so people know, it's I'll spell your name just A M E L I A, and then the air heart is E H R H A R D T. 
Um, and um, your website is, well, actually, there are a couple ways that you're online, mm-hmm. um, but um, it's the, the Instagram is soft underscore aspects. And, you know, just your namesake is the website. And then also you write for Oh My God blog uh, doing their astrology. Mm-hmm. But and just to point out, I also have a so I have separate websites. OK, my choreographic practice, which is AmeliaEarhart.net, And then I have soft dash aspects.net, which is for my astrology work. Okay, wonderful. And I'll make sure on the innermakeup.net webpage, I'll, I will list all that out so you all can get there. So how did you get started with astrology? Well, um, I had always been interested. I think that I had the classic story of being a little kid who was really interested in the stars and in mm. constellations. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember always there was this one spot up at, uh, I have some extended family with a cottage uh, in the Kawarthas in Ontario that I've been very lucky to grow up going to and I remember this one spot I would always look up at the southern sky and see this one constellation that looked kind of like a teapot and never knew Mm. what it was and when I was a teenager I found out that it was Sagittarius that I had been Mm. staring at my own sun signs constellation for all of those years Mm. um so I always had an interest in it and then around the around when I was uh 26 or 27 um, I started getting finding myself wanting to learn more about it as access became more available through the internet mm-hmm. and through Instagram. And my life was going through, I was going through a really, really hard time. And I met up with, with an elder queer friend and he said, well, you're going through your Saturn return. And I said, what is that? Right. Um, and around <laughs> then I was like, okay, astrology is making a lot more sense to me than therapy is. So mm-hmm. I'm going to stick with this practice. Uh, mm-hmm. So it started out as something that I was doing to support myself, doing to support my my mental health and my growth and my personal development. And then Julia, um, I went to see her for a chart reading for the first time. And shortly after that, she agreed to take me on as a student. Mm-hmm. And it really just kind of snowballed from there. And over the course of the last, like basically just throughout 2020, it's really become almost the majority of what I do. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. Some people might not know this, but there were, and we really don't have time to get into this. And I, I actually, we're going to spend a lot more time on things that I think are relevant, like your creative <laughs> activities and your astrology, because it, it is the Star Love podcast. I give try to give love to the astrologers and their unique selves. But there were actually, I have to say this, there were these Vernon Clark trials. I don't know if you're aware of some of no. this was an interesting scientific study that was done in science and astrology. That's a whole thing. Like I said, we don't yeah. have time to get into it. <laughs> but actually, the it was live readings, double blind. But the people, it just, it just hit me because you said you've, you know, completed two years of study. People who had like a couple years of study did just as well as astrologers who had like 30 years oh, of wow. study. So how yeah because there's something to you know enough to get in trouble and then mm. sometimes the simplicity can actually speak very much I'm not actually that's not discounting people who have more experience but mm-hmm. how about that you're going you're that's doing just as well as you're going to be doing in 30 years so that should make you feel good yeah, right? that's, that's both uh, that's both hopeful and despondent at the same time <laughs> my teacher I, I want to say this quickly my teacher has this wonderful quote that she says when people bring up the science and astrology thing and they say something like you know well you know, science can't prove astrology. We, we're working in a profession, obviously, where people love to tell us that what we do is fake. So when people say this to her, science can't prove astrology, science can't prove astrology, she goes back to them and says, yes, science also can't cure psoriasis. 
Right. So, right. so that, yeah. Explain that to me. <laughs> right. Right. And there's a lot of things science can do or science does do that maybe yeah. it shouldn't do. Um, right. Uh, I'm so interested in this. So you've thought the constellation Sagittarius was a teapot. Is that something, because I take a real divinatory creative approach to astrology, do you still ever think of that teapot in your own astrological work? In my astro, like, do I work, think about the symbol, symbology of a teapot? Yeah, or actually use it in a chart to interpret for people. I mean, it's a very unique image. I, I love that. Um, and then you think of, I mean, you know, the the tip of the, you know, the bow or the um, the arrow of Sagittarius pointing to the galactic center. I mean, it's mm -hmm. I almost get like the archer pouring tea maybe into the galactic center or something just off the top of it. But that, I mean, that seems like such a unique symbol. You might. Run, I don't know, you might run with that. That's interesting. I'll look into yeah. that more. I mean, I guess the, the first thing that brings up for me is the symbology of Aquarius and the like, you mm -hmm. know, Aquarius and um and Sagittarius as signs that uh that sextile each other and signs mm -hmm. that have a, a co-relationship to freedom, I'll say, but mm -hmm. I haven't specifically thought about it from a from that kind of symbology point, I think I'm, I'm going to have to think about that. That's interesting. Isn't it though? I mean, if I've never heard of that and I, if I find an astrological symbol, I don't think I've ever met one that I don't want to, <laughs> and that gets me in trouble. That really does. Um, so actually that's interesting though. So, you know, this idea of a sextile and your astrology practice is called soft aspects. So could you just for you bear with us? Some people know this, but I try to bridge a wide gap between people Absolutely. who are just coming into what are the soft aspects and how why focus on soft aspects and you know what draws you to the soft aspects for sure well um to give some didactic information the aspects are geometric relationships between planets um the greeks thought that there were some that they were good and some that were bad i'm skipping over a lot of right. <laughs> time history and, and things here but there are basically um sextiles and trines are considered positive flowing or soft aspects Squares and oppositions are considered to be um, stressful, motivating, or hard aspects. Um, so soft aspects encourage flow, encourage positivity, mm. um, and encourage, uh, yeah, encourage ease in a natal chart or in a or in an astrological moment. And part of why I chose the name, a, I was just looking for a nice kind of poetic sounding mm -hmm. image for that was very astrologically uh, oriented. I had it down to soft aspects. And my second one, which I'll now use if I ever start like a joke astrology Instagram, which was wide orb, which um, <laughs> is also yeah. very inside baseball. Um, but the other reason that I chose it when I when I thought about it is that my one of the strange things about my fairly strange natal chart is that I have a lot of soft aspects. I have uh, I actually just have it in front of me two, four, six, eight, ten. I have twelve trines in my chart um, oh my and a grand and a grand water trine. So I'm quite oh, wow. there's a lot of trines in my chart. So I identify with the um, with the with the luck and the ease, of course, I, I think I've lived a very lucky and beneficial life, but I also um, really identify with how trines and an abundance of trines can create a sort of like inability to see past this one thing that um, that the natal with uh, with a lot of trines in it lives. Mm. Very interesting. You know, and it, it, I have to tell you, sometimes things, it, 
it's just funny because sometimes things come off of this podcast like there was um astrologer the other day came on Lori randall stratman mm-hmm. and we're i couldn't it was the name strad and we it was like we need to get a guitar and she's like well i do play a little bit so i'm like i really want to see that and now it's it's not about me but i'd love to see like the teapot <laughs> like t- t- i i'm serious like teapot astrology let's do, come on like that is amazing <laughs> there's a teapot on the desk with me right now actually I, oh my god see this is it i i really that would like make my heart sing but I'm only one so but that you know the star love you know we launch things here anyways but so you're doing fine on your own I'm sure okay but but that okay so soft aspects but how do you define astrology because you know every astrologer is different but but what is astrology if you can even put some kind of working definition onto it sure um I listened to a podcast uh, that Renee Sills of Embodied Astrology um, puts out. She's a wonderful astrologer, works really. She's also a a body worker and a movement practitioner. So um, I have a lot of resonances with her. And she described astrology as a system for measuring light and time. And I, I just keep, I just keep coming back to that. I I wish I could say it was my own, but I really think it's, it's so elegant. It's a system for measuring light and time and that systems for measuring light and time exist around the world. And one of the things that I really like about that terminology is that it highlights that astrology is a system for exactly what she says, a system for measurement. Um, You know, my teacher also says astrology is to our lives what a clock is to time, that astrology doesn't uh, doesn't define the life that we live. But it says, you know, 5 p.m. means something to us as a culture. It doesn't mean something galactically as far as we know but it means something to us just as you know uh what are we today a capricorn moon on a on a hot leo day means something to us as well that is extraordinary and it makes me think of um well, a couple, two things, and you know, I bring different. This is why you know I love having you on. This will be really fun. But Ursula Le Guin um, wrote a book called *The Dispossessed*, and it gets yes, into I different types of time. Yes, I'm a big Ursula K. Le Guin fan. <laughs> oh my God, *The Dispossessed* and the different forms of time, whether it's simultaneity or linear time or reverse causation, or as uh, what was her name? I forget the character, but she says. Um, the inhabitation of time yeah so yeah there's so many different kinds of time so would you think astrology in a way is kind of it's sort of in time but it's sort of behind time but Mm -hmm. because if you think of the time that it takes the light to get to here us on earth i mean the fixed stars i mean way out there but then even the time it takes um you know the rays of the sun to get here so how might that factor into what you're saying i mean this is i've never heard it defined that way but i i love that and there was another book called the light of other days by Mm -hmm. arthur c clark and stephen baxter and it gets into going back in time and seeing time before through light Um, oh i'm gonna have to look that up i really like stephen baxter's work Yes. See, this is why this podcast is fun. <laughs> but could you, yeah. J- could you go into that a little bit more? Because I've never heard this and I, I'll put the links to everybody you just mentioned. But, you know, what did you say? A system of measuring time and light, correct? System measuring light and time. That's what Renee yeah. says. And I wrote it down. She did this beautiful. She she makes these um uh, embodied meditations um for the for the new and the full moons. And she did this one during the Scorpio full moon that happened um, a couple of months ago. So, yeah, her work, right, during Taurus season is when the, the 
the Scorpio full moon happened. So could I talk about that more? And I, I guess the thing that really resonated with me on that is I think so much about how the first thing that made me really fall in, just fall in love with astrology once I had taken on a more um, a more serious study of it. And, you know, I'm a Sagittarius with a ninth house stellium. So I like wow. study expansion. It, like this is huge for me in my life. Mm-hmm. But when I found out that um, that when I when I found out how much astrology is used actually as a way of dealing with the circumstances on Earth, that it describes, you know, that there's something about Taurus season that is about that is about blooming and that it's mm-hmm. that is tangible when you look at what's happening in Taurus Taurus season or that in Scorpio season, everything dies in this part of the world. Mm. Um, you know, I, one of the one of the remarkable things about living where I do in um, in southern Ontario in Canada is that the seasonal shifts are so drastic from each other mm-hmm. a recurring joke in this part of the world is that there's at least 12 seasons in a year um <laughs> which is absolutely true of astrology and like yes well we have aquarius season and we have pisces season and all of these three week shifts are really different and mm-hmm. again when you live in a part of the world where the absence of light plays a really big part in your life mm. um light as a as a quality of our life becomes a really big becomes a really big motivating factor mm-hmm. so I think that to combine light and time in that way and that humans you know we also our conception of time has to do with light also wow yes it, it's so interesting because it, it seems to me and this is still thinking of linear time but mm-hmm. then in that sense astrology is behind time because mm-hmm. you know, we're but then I guess that still is able to reflect us to us the here and now even though things have already transpired in linear time but then that is not the only kind of time anyways but yeah. that that is an amazing you know it's funny I was just thinking about that they you know the amount of time that it takes you know the sun's light to reach here on earth or all that but that's maybe that's something we could all be mindful of that even though we're looking at a chart for a certain moment the amount of time that it took for that chart to occur as it is to us here and now Hmm. and i that's something very new to me even though conceptually i've been introduced to those ideas but to put it in some sort of practical way here by you that's great. Well, that's uh, also there's also something really uh, like almost choreographic about that to me. You know, I think I yes. think about the choreography as a dancer that so much of what you do is just making sure that like so all of these different people are in the same place at the same time doing exactly mm-hmm. what they're supposed to be doing. So something mm-hmm. about the arrival of all of these mm-hmm. different light sources on Earth that all mm-hmm. left at different times. Yeah, that feels choreographic to me. Mm. Yes, and we're going to talk about your choreographic and dance work, which I love. But first, you wrote you write for Oh My God blog. Now, how did you get doing that? Um, so the oh, the founder of that blog um, is a friend of mine named Frank, and we've known each other just kind of through the queer scene in Toronto for a number of years. Um, and towards the beginning of the pandemic, he happened to book an astrology reading with me and I gave Mm. him a reading and he really, he really loved it. He resonated. And I had been thinking about writing, uh, about starting to do some kind of horoscope writing practice. And I asked if he wanted to, if he would be interested in it. And he immediately said yes. So it happened very quickly. I asked a friend who ran a blog and then it started happening. Wow. And what, what do you try to achieve through, because a lot of the concepts were, 
you know, kind of bandying around right now are, mm-hmm. you know, to be quite honest, quite advanced. When I mean, you're talking about Ursula Le Guin and Stephen Baxter and, the, you know, these wonderful yeah. astrologers, you know, seriously. And then you're, you were trying to, you know, maybe transliterate in a way here now. But mm-hmm. when you're talking about a sun sign blog, I, I mean, I write one down here in New Orleans, too, um, mm-hmm. for publication. But if sun sign really has to hit people in a simple moment and then deliver a message. So mm-hmm. what do you try? So that is obviously you have an amazing choreographic, creative dance background and you're, you know, all these ideas are orbiting with you. Uh, you know, we, uh, right away we're talking about physics and light and all that. <laughs> but then when, when you write a, when you write a sun sign uh, or when you write a horoscopic blog, I mean, that's very different. So what are you trying to communicate through that? Well, when I started writing them, I have, um, you know, I have a relationship to horoscopes. I, I'm, I'm quite skeptical of horoscopes, as I think a right. lot of astrologers are. I'm like, well, how do you write a sun sign horoscope when all the calculations are made for the rising anyway? Um, so I do write, I specifically write my horoscopes and say, like, look at your rising sign and look at your sun sign. But hmm. what I try to speak about, you know, I try to describe the present moment that we're in, in terms mm-hmm. of politics, in terms of um palpable zeitgeist and things that are going on which obviously at this moment there's plenty going on and then I try to put that through an astrological lens and think about okay how is this how is this cultural moment and then the astrology that describes this cultural moment going to um going to affect somebody who is you know a deeply empathetic Pisces or Mm -hmm. maybe a volatile Aries person like how are they going to be reacting to what's going on right now and Mm -hmm. I try to write as generally as possible from that perspective. But I generally, I always do put really specific information for people with the rising signs, like, you know, Mm -hmm. such and such is transiting your seventh house. So, you know, a new moon in the seventh house means what you can think it means. Well, and to add somewhat of a rejoinder to this is in your own words, astrology is not determinate, but descriptive and interpretive. Mm -hmm. So that means there has to be a participatory act on the part of the reader, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So it's not solely incumbent upon you to figure all these things out, but that there is a moment that you do reach the reader and the reader has reached out to you. Would you say so? Yeah, that's a really beautiful way of putting it. That there's like a co-creation of the reading. Right, right. I mean, some of these ideas, um, it's I get it more from... Um, Jeffrey Cornelius, the moment of astrology, he, you Mm -hmm. know, he talks about this, Uh, but, um, but, you know, to take apart that statement that you made astrology also, so descriptive and interpretive, but astrology is not determinate. And I, I was reading on your blog too, on the OMG blog, you say that you're wary of predictions and so am I, I, Mm -hmm. that, because there's a real philosophical, underpinning to what happens when you make a prediction and put that kind of psychic power behind it that we're involved with it and I think a lot of and this can be like a prediction on CNN or by an astrologer but that and ancient cultures understood this that that was more akin to an incantation Mm -hmm. so if we make a prediction we're kind of putting it out there but could you talk about you know you're you're being a little bit wary of predictions yourself yeah, I mean, I guess it's a it's an ethical standpoint for me, um, based on first of all, based on the fact that I just don't have very much experience with um, with mundane astrology and with predictive astrology. That I'm still mm-hmm. I only have a couple of years of really paying attention to the astrology that's going on mm-hmm. and really looking forwards into astrology. Um, 
so there's that that I don't that I I, th- I think I'm still garnering experience enough experience um, when I read charts for my clients uh, if we do any forecast or transit work what I'll do is first have them describe I'll open their transits from the past year forwards and I'll have them go over their past year for me in that way if there are transits that you know if they have transits that hit a retrograde cycle that are going to return from them, then I'll be able to say like, okay, between July and August, such and such energy was present. That energy mm. will be back in February and it will be mm-hmm. back in November. So think to like people you met during those times, structures you encounter depending mm-hmm. on the transit and what the lessons of those were and, and think about that during these future times. Um, you know, there are some astrologers who are, who are just really excellent at the predictive element of element of it. I mean, I think of Suzanne Miller, a classic, that she's so specific. Like a lot of astrologers these days um, write more like affirming style horoscopes and Suzanne Miller will be like, you're going to see a dog next Thursday. And then it actually happens. So I don't, I don't trust myself quite to, to, to make predictions. But again, I feel there's a, people attach a lot of meaning. What I'm learning is that people, people attach a lot of meaning and put a lot of weight in the words that astrologers say. And in the words that anybody who engages in esoteric mediums say, and I, you know, People in any medium can make a mistake and be wrong. Mm-hmm. And I would hate to, it, again, it's an ethical question. Like what happens if an astrologer is wrong about a prediction? Right. Which and is so it, likely to happen. Right. And then, you know, it is that I mean, right. There's this ethical issue. And there's also, especially around horary astrology, you know, so for people yeah. who are learning, the, the more astrology where you cast a chart for the moment not the natal chart but there are all these rules about considerations before judgment and what is the state of the astrologer and how is the astrologer involved so it's not so much just the astrologer sort of neutrally looks at a chart from afar but again we're involved in all this stuff Mm -hmm. and we're you know entered and actually interestingly that and we'll get into this but i that's at the heart of your art and the way you live how does your creative background play into all this because you know you talked about okay an astrology chart the different types of light that all come together in that one chart in the moment kind of like you know if you were to choreograph a dance that everything comes together in that moment but you know in my opinion you must think that you part of your creative background is in that say the the eye of you as an artist the way that you interpret a chart is that how you see it or not so that i have that i have uh that i use an artistic eye in interpreting charts yeah, or even that's something very deeply part of who you are, so you almost can't help interpreting a chart that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely that's the case. I, you know, as an as an artist, as a as a choreographer, as a dancer, I work with improvisation a lot, um, and an impulsive and improvisatory nature to my chart readings is also pretty common for me. I find that no matter how much I try to really minimize, I beg your pardon. I try to really minimize the amount of prep time that I do because no matter what happens when I do prep time, I get into the chart reading. I'm like, Oh, this right. is like a massive T square to their Chiron that I didn't notice before. Mm-hmm. This is actually going to be a much louder element than their sun and pipe, whatever, you know? Right. Um, so, an, so a, a, an intuitive and improvisatory lens definitely has a lot to do with it. Um, in French, and I, I don't actually know if this is um, if this is a France French thing or if this was a specifically Quebecois thing, but the word for dancer is interprète, which means interpreter. Mm-hmm. Um, and very often, especially in Canada, um, 
dancers in processes and in contemporary dance globally, dancers in processes will be called interpreters. Mm -hmm. Um, This is coming a bit out of fashion now, but it's this thing about a a dancer being somebody who is given work by a choreographer who has a score or a framework or whatever. And then the dancers, Mm -hmm. like the interpretation of it is then what leads into a whole other, a whole other thing. And so I think about the interpretation part of a natal chart as as being similar that a lot of what I've always done has been looking at information that was given to me or that is mm-hmm. given to me and mm-hmm. and taking that great and you say that for your horoscope so that you know you're interpreting it you're writing it you're delivering it in a reading mm-hmm. but your horoscopes especially for your horoscopic writing these are written for what you already know yeah. so what does that mean what does that mean for the people who are reading your horoscopes well i like to um whenever i see people for client readings one of the first things that i say to them is that they know themselves best um they they're the person with the most information about them and that i have this lens and that if there's something that I say that doesn't resonate with them about themselves, that rather than try to reinterpret their life story to make some factoid that an astrologer told them fit in with their life story, that they should consider that maybe the astrologer is wrong. Yeah. <laughs> reinterpret. Well, that is. And I feel similarly about, about my horoscope readings, that if something really resonates for some, like, you know, if something, if somebody's reading a Leo, horos- Leo horoscope for the rising side, and they're not a Leo rising, but something about the Leo rising horoscope and inter- works for them, then it's like, go with that. Right. Yeah, I know. And this, this does get into, again, it gets more into the the divinatory sort of out there stuff that we really don't have control over this. And that sometimes it's, you hit the wrong chart or you hit the wrong omen or whatever, the wrong horoscope, but that was actually what you were meant to see yep. or whatever mechanism in that moment, or it was just chance or whatever, and that you can accept the message. Yep. So some, yeah, it's not an exact sort of a hundred percent all the time. The electric bulb goes on, you know, not this kind of thing. Yeah, no. you know, interesting. You bring up Suzanne Miller. Um, I actually met her under a full moon when I was in Soho in Manhattan. Oh, wow. And yes. And this is a funny story because uh, another gentleman who came on the podcast, Henry Seltzer, who he does astrograph.com and time passages mm-hmm. software. And he mm-hmm. wrote a great book about Eris as the feminine warrior archetype. Oh, cool. Uh, yes. He does. He's done research for years and years into that. Um, so he and Suzanne were giving um a talk together at the apple store and she was trying to demonstrate i think it was the uranus pluto square and a couple other planets were squaring them at that point it was a full moon Mm -hmm. so i volunteered to get up on stage and i was out of alignment with the square (laughs) she took my arm and she's like no need to get over here (laughs) so she really was kind of taking charge of the whole talk and you know was really like leading the whole thing but i was out of i was out of the square so i don't know if that's good or bad but i I think i was pluto too so and it was maybe i was resisting the tension of the square i was like i don't know i don't want to get involved in this but she she pulled me over to keep me in keep me in line which was pretty funny but um um, but yeah, very, very well-known astrologer. Um, okay, so this is a more technical question for people who are interested. So you, you make it, and we pretty much all do this, but for those of us who write horoscopes in some fashion, but that you use whole sign houses, because and that's where the, the you know the sign is the house, and you know, there are many different house systems. But do you have any opinion on which house system you prefer or what you like or? 
Yeah, I work with Placidus House Systems. Right. Um, I learned with Placidus, and um, there are things about Placidus House Systems that make that still make the most sense to me. Any of the um, oh, what, what's it called? I'm blanking on the word, but the four quarters. What are those quadrant house systems? Quadrants, yeah. Um, one of the things about uh, a very funny inside thing about like very detailed thing about Placidus that really resonates for me is that I have an interception on my fifth um, mm-hmm. and my 11th house and it really resonates for me. And I find the clients always really, really resonate with interceptions. Right. Um, I like that Placidus and other similar systems make account for distance from the equator at the time of birth right. because the location of somebody's birth really does take into a, like accounts for a lot of the circumstances that they face. Mm-hmm. Um, there are also things about whole sign system that really, um, that really resonate for me. I just had my chart read by Charm Torres. She's a Toronto based astrologer who studies, uh, traditional astrology. Mm-hmm. And there are things about my chart in traditional astrology that also really work for me. Um, what I always say to my clients, cause you know, especially because right now a lot of people are getting really interested in traditional astrology. Right. You know, a lot of people are reading Chani's book and in Chani's book, she has people go through their chart in whole signs. Um, and so what, again, what I always say is if there's something about your chart that resonates for you and whole sign, then, then stick with that. Mm-hmm. Um, I use whole signs for horoscopes, as I'm sure is obvious, because you can actually make general predictions using whole signs. And with right. classes, it's impossible. Right. You know, it's interesting because I, this is where curiosity killed the cat. I mean, I have a Gemini moon out of bounds conjunct North node in the eighth house. So I, oh, wow. am, I'm very, yes. <laughs> so I'm very curious about different techniques, but one, one way if people are interested, um, Marinus, the famous French astrologer who I believe he really went hard after Galileo and that did not work out well for him. <laughs> I mean, re- I think he really went hard after him. Like, he, he, I mean, back in the day, it was like really, you could like go, do a duel in the street or, or I yeah. mean, really like something like that. I, he, but he had this thing where he, he would say like the eight, it's the eighth house, but the ninth sign. So coincidentally he kept in mind the order of the signs which would be like the whole signs and i think he called them accidental dignities oh with, okay yeah yeah it's really so it's really weird. cool Try, just for people because it's not yeah, keep, um I, people don't know this that much but it's a cool way to kind of read a chart where it's like you keep in mind just whatever kind of quadrant house system you're doing mm-hmm. um and then what that means you know symbolically and then still keep the order of signs in mind so like let's say you have i don't know mars in the first house but mars okay like say i don't know capricorn rising mars in the first house in aquarius Mm -hmm. so it would it would be the first house but the second sign so that that might mean okay you're like this aggressive visionary like you really go for your freedom loving beliefs but then that can actually be related to your values and money right so it's it's a cool way and it kind of creates some movement in the chart too Hmm. it's sort of like you see what i'm saying it's almost like you you, like that makes the chart kind of like a dial i find it good i mean yeah that's interesting I know it's you know we all go in like moods and we shift I mean for a while I was doing whole sign and then I got back to Placidus 
So it's, and then this Marinus has been a good way. Now I'm kind of in the plas- Placidian mood right now. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's like, the, I know it's kind of like. In mood. a Placidian mood, yeah. I know. Yeah, and I think sometimes, you know, there's a lot of, like, there's always these debates, which I get so tired of. But I think it's because Placidus is the dominant system that it's like, okay, we're going to go after Placidus because the dominant, even though I mm-hmm. think there's some great things about Placidus. And it was somebody else who actually invented it. It wasn't Placidus. Mm-hmm. But sometimes I think, poor Placidus, he was just a <laughs> monk. Like, what? You know? He was just a monk. <laughs> I know. He was like, like, he's not, he was like probably the most mild person. And it's like, I think he was even, the Catholic Church came after him. Okay. So, what you know. Was in his chart? Huh? I wonder what was in his chart. I know. Poor Placidus, right? <laughs> Okay, so, and we're going to get, because we really got to get into your other creative activities, but you say you practice astrology from bed, so how do you do that? I mean, it's it's interesting for me because sometimes I'm just tired and I'm doing work in bed, and I do get client calls, and they they can be kind of strange calls, but Mm -hmm. like, but what's your experience practicing astrology from bed? I mean, that's a bit of a, uh, that's a bit of a glib statement about practicing from bed that I started using um, at the start of the pandemic. Um, when I was doing almost everything, if not from bed, then within arm's reach of my bed where my desk is. Um, but I'm also, um, you know, I've been in, I've been in some career transition over the past, uh, I guess now like nine months. Um, and during that time I've been on EI. So I've been really like reformulating what my work days look like. And it turns out that I work really efficiently when I'm in a horizontal position. Interesting. Um, or when I have, have more capacity to move around. I think some of this is related to, you know, actually having a dance background and being able to like move around, lie down, sit up, stand, uh, sit down, stand up. Um, so yeah, the, the practicing from bed thing came around at the, at the start of the quarantine when I was just constantly in my bed. Um, and it's kind of stuck because of the, um, my continued, my continued very close to my bed status. I don't know if you anything, know anything about Toronto real estate. I have a lovely apartment, but apartments here are, expensive and often small right 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 so that brings us to your dance background how did you get started dancing um well I started dancing when I taking formal class when I was 14 which is pretty um Mm -hmm. pretty late for for most Mm -hmm. people in like western dance practices um I had always been involved in art and in athletics um and growing up, we didn't have access to dance classes. And then Mm -hmm. I started taking them at 14 and just really fell in love with it. So I continued studying that. I went to a pretty small um, college in Toronto, which colleges in Canada are the equivalent of um, of like a community college mm-hmm. in the United States. So I went to a college program for a dance, uh, a college dance program, and I danced professionally for a little while um, and then finished up my undergrad in dance at York University in Toronto. Mm-hmm. which is a which is a quite old program and during that time continued dancing and working professionally mm-hmm. um dance is a really hard field uh it's yes. it's a really really exhausting profession and there's just no money in it so i um i had been working sort of in many ways in many ways which dancers and people in that field have to do um i make my own choreographic work that's sort of the center of my artistic mm-hmm. practice as a choreographer I dance in other people's work when the opportunity arises, which is not that often. I dance in my own work as well. Um, I teach, again, also when the opportunity arises. And I, for a number of years, worked as a curator and a programmer as well. Wonderful. And how would you describe your style of dance? Well, I work in contemporary dance, which means a lot of different things. Um, 
a lot of the roots of my work come from um, come from American postmodern dance practices. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. things that are rooted in minimalism, rooted in a quote unquote more pedestrian, less stylized mm-hmm. uh, kind of movement. Um, again, I work with improvisation quite a lot. Um, somebody close to me was looking at some work of mine recently and described it as floppy floppy, which <laughs> okay. feels, feels pretty accurate. There's a lot of like quite structured flopping. I work with a lot of looseness in the body, but then a mm. lot of like quick movement, tight control of the body, but with kind of loose ends. Mm. Yeah, this is interesting because I'm very much a lay person with all this, but I've talked to some dancers and they say, look, there's a difference between people who have formal training and then even if they go off to some other form of, say, you know, non-traditional classical, you know, what we would think of classical ballet or something versus somebody who maybe didn't have that initially, that that formal training always sticks with you. Do you agree mm-hmm. with that? I do, for better and worse. Right. I mean, it's it's not a yeah, judgment statement. It's just like it, it's always yeah. there. and. So, okay, this brings us, so when we're writing back and forth, some of the words you use to describe what you do and you say words are inadequate, and we'll get to that, but you say you see yourself as trying to live, work, and relate on Indigenous land. Mm -hmm. Could you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, Those are words that are in my email signature, Mm -hmm. Um, and I use the words live, work, and relate because that describes everything that happens. Um, in a, in a life, I think, um, a f- number of years ago, it, within the last decade, uh, indigenous sovereignty and ecological, ecological excuse me, okay. indigenous sovereignty and ecological justice, particularly for indigenous communities has thankfully become a lot more at the forefront of, uh, of discussions and, of the mindset in a lot of places that I, a lot of environments that I work in and in the place that I live in Canada, it's become very common practice, for instance, before, um, before public gatherings and events or any arts and environment or in the Toronto district school board, this is set at the beginning of the day is something called a land acknowledgement where you start the day. You would start any event here, for instance, by saying we're gathered today on the traditional territory of the Haudenosaunee, the Wendat and the Mississaugas of the New Credit. This land is dished with one spoon wampum belt territory. And again, the inadequacy of those words being that like my acknowledgement that that I'm on indigenous land doesn't doesn't absolve me of being a settler here and doesn't absolve me of the responsibility that I have because I'm a settler. But um, one specific thing about where I live is that one of one of the agreements that was made between Indigenous nations and the state of Canada um, was that in Toronto, under the Toronto Purchase, that the the people of Toronto, the future residents of Toronto, would be responsible for ongoing maintenance and care of the Great Lakes system and of the land around here. So I think about how my my chance and fortune to live where I do involves like a commitment to caring for caring for the land as best I can. You know, and it's interesting because, you know, you talk about the inadequacy of words. Some writers, I think famously Scott Momaday, the house made of dawn, Mm -hmm. and he talks about this, that in the beginning there was the word. Mm. So even language itself is where, you know, look, language gives us facility. We're using English right now, but 
words are insufficient, especially, you know, look, we're using astrology. And as I was saying, we transliterate astrology, but then also through your artistic work. I mean, that's a very different kind of communication other than words. And, mm-hmm. you know, how do you see your artistic mediums in a way that is different than words? That's a big topic. I mean, yeah, um, I I've, had a, I've had a lot of conversations with um, my friend Ben Camino is somebody who I've spoken to a lot about this. We've known each other since we were in high school and he's still a man about town and in the dance world. Um, when I was younger, in my early 20s, I really identified with dance as like a kind of an alternative instance of language or of communication. And, and mm. Ben said this thing to me about dance being languageless. Um, mm. And I, I really agree with that. And, there, you know, there, this kind of conversation comes up in dance spheres a lot about whether dance is languageless, whether dance is post-language, whether dan- dance is about an, alter- an alternative kind of language. Um, I'm really interested in the kind of communication that happens in dance, which is, which is nonverbal, mm-hmm. um, which is aesthetic, ultimately, um, and which isn't for which isn't primarily for transmission of information. Mm. It's more about transmission of state, energy, sensation, um, image, these kinds of things. And, you, you know, it's interesting. I mean, we're still stuck in language here, but but you use some really interesting terms on your website through some of your artistic work called Plain Nature Morning. Plain Nature Public Morning, yeah. Yes, and Non-Human Locomotion. Could you help people to understand some of these terms? Sure. Yeah. Um, so the term, the this work is called Plain Nature Public Morning. Um, plain Nature is, uh, on the one thing, just a describing of just nature pure and simple, but it's also a bilingual joke that... Um, in French, the word for plane is nature. So if you look at a, a chip bag that says that's for plain unflavored chips, it says plain nature, plain nature. Mm. Um, so that that's just a, a really inside uh, bilingual Canadian joke. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, public morning. So I'm working in this in this piece. I work on um, representations of the ways that non-human life forms move. So the ways that you know mm. sea slugs move. The ways that um, cave salamanders or mm-hmm. uh, or kelp, you know, things that aren't even quote-unquote animals. Um, I'm working on it as a way of engaging with with animals during a moment of mass extinction and as an opportunity for trying to uh, trying to engage with animals from as much as I can from their perspective. Mm. Um, in part just because I really love animals. This is a work that I started making because I wanted to make a so I wanted to make a solo, and I wanted to make a work that um, that I would enjoy and that my friends would enjoy, and that was trying to escape a little bit the um, the very industrious and um, ambitious cycle of the contemporary dance production world. I wanted to make something that was a bit a bit more personal. You know, and it's so interesting because when I was on your website, you know, obviously these are photos of you dancing, but they almost seem, we were talking about this, it almost seems like 
there's a dance, but with the dance of an intent that it will be photographed as a still mm-hmm. form. Does mm-hmm. that, I found that quite unique just in my you know limited perception. But could you talk about that a little bit? And people should really check this out because I think it's quite unique stuff. I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I definitely do that. I mean, I engage when I was a teenager. Um, I went to a high school for the arts here in Toronto uh, and I had the opportunity to work in the dark room there when we, you know, back in, back in such a day. And I was really interested in photography. And actually before I became a dancer and a choreographer, I thought I would go to school to become a photographer. So I do still engage with the art form from that perspective. Um, Mm. One thing that I think has influenced that in my choreographic work is that I have a background in classical ballet and classical ballet Mm -hmm. is really like image movement, image movement, image Mm. movement. And there are these positions that are held um, quite demonstrably. So there, there's that element. And then there's also that I think a lot about uh, how and where my work will be disseminated. And mm. right now, a lot of that is the internet. Um, mm-hmm. And video is not really a medium that speaks to me for some reason, but mm. still still image really does. So I, mm-hmm. I sometimes dance in, in ways. And I'm, I'm interested also in the way that when dance gets documented in still image, you have to kind of put things together. There's this sort of stop motion quality of it. And I like the, I like the information that is lost. And I like the inference that has to happen when you look at a series of photos from the same, from the same framing, you know, with a camera frame set up still and me moving mm-hmm. in it, the inference mm-hmm. of like, how has this person gone from A to B? Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. I want to talk so much more about this, but we've got to get to some astrology for people. <laughs> but but this this is what we do on the podcast. It's really there's a lot of creative pulsation that happens, but then you know astrology as well. So one thing that you were writing about, which I was happy to see, because I don't strangely enough, I don't think a lot of people have talked about this for 2020. And by the time this podcast will be coming out, and by the, this is, we're recording this, what is this, July 31st? Yes. Oh, we're about to hit into August. Uh, mm-hmm. July 31st, 2020, it's 3 p.m. Central Time. But uh, we started doing this. Mm-hmm. But the Cancer Capricorn axis of 2020. Mm-hmm. And there's been so much emphasis on Capricorn, and that's true because there are a lot of planets on Capric- in Capricorn this year. But guess what? We've had the North Node in Cancer. It was through all of pretty much 2019 and through yeah. the beginning of this year. So why people were not paying attention to this that much. So what, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? I mean, it's really kind of shocking to me. It's like, hello, the North Node. It's like, <laughs> so where, yeah. So what, what, can you tell me a little bit about this from your opinion? Uh, Cause it's, I'm like, wh- I did a video about this at the beginning of the year. I'm like, you know, everybody might want to think about North Node and cancer, Yeah. <laughs> but, but go ahead. <laughs> Well, it's definitely probable. You know, I'm Cancer rising, so thinking about ah, it, I'm yes. Cancer rising, and I have Neptune and Capricorn um, mm. pretty much conjunct my descendant. Mm. So the Cancer Capricorn, Neptune and Capricorn is the only Earth sign I have in my poor watery chart. Otherwise, um, <laughs> which is like having negative Earth, having negative in Capricorn. I always think. <laughs> but so the, the Cancer Capricorn is underlined in my chart, um, and since the year has been so much about Capricorn thematics, mm-hmm. but we have been in the home. I've been, that is I've, been, it, yes. I've been thinking about how we're watching these huge um, Capricorn thematics unfold while in a space, while in a cancer space. Those of us who are, you know, many of us are lucky enough to, to be in a cancer space, mm-hmm. um, in a home, in a space of 
you know, relative safety. Of course, I say that knowing that home isn't a safe place for everybody. Um, so I started thinking about the Cancer Capricorn axis a lot around the eclipses, which have been happening in Cancer and Capricorn mm-hmm. over the mm-hmm. past year and a half. And how, so we had those eclipses and then we had the, the, the shit show that was mid January happening right. in, in Capricorn. And then every time it, it's just meant that every time anything happens in the sign of cancer, um, it, it opposes everything that's been going on in Capricorn and, and brings to light really uh, articulates the Capricorn energy and how the Capricorn energy is oppositional to the ways that we need to feel emotionally safe and the ways that we are when we are very vulnerable and close to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, go on. Sorry. No, it's okay. I was just thinking, you know, it really, because the North node is where, you know, you can potentially make gains and mm-hmm. all of 2019, you know, everything, there's so much ambition, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's, it really, at the end of the day, it can really screw you over. But, um, you know, this real emphasis on home and family and pulling together in that yeah. way mm-hmm. is something really critical, but that was all happening, you know, last year to try to do that. Yeah. So, and then there was a little bit, it's now it's kind of like, well, all right, now that we're on to Gemini, but yeah. it's so, you know, here we go. But that, yeah, that's my mm, that's little interesting. take. Yeah, just quickly, because we're starting to run short on time. we got to get to Brittany, too. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the, what, do you, what do you see? I mean, you know, as we were talking about, predictions are tricky, but the end of 2020 into 2021. Right. Um, well, I've been thinking, I'm actually just going to gonna flip to that page in my ephemeris while I talk about this. Um, okay. I'm not an astrologer who has all of the trends at the top of my mind all of the time. Mm-hmm. But I am loves my ephemeris. I do have twenty a lot of twenty twenty highlighted. I do have the the Jupiter Saturn conjunction that's happening again in Aquarius. Um Mars still just making its way through Aries. Mars is gonna square Pluto um, mm. shortly uh like towards mid December. Um mm-hmm. so Mars squares Pluto right around when Aquarius, right around when Saturn and Capricorn move into Aquarius. Right. I have been really hopeful about the transition into the new year, and I don't know if this is my reckless Sagittarian optimism or if this is uh, if this is some other reason, but I feel that the this movement into Aquarius, I think I've been thinking a lot about how after the, the Capricorn into Aquarius movement after rigidity comes rebellion, mm-hmm. and that I I feel hopeful that that some time in a more freedom oriented and in a more humanitarian oriented sign will, um, will bring some opportunity of, of a wider perspective, I suppose. I think that um, the astrology with everything in Capricorn, people have just been so anxious and people have mm-hmm. been, there's been a lot of resource anxiety. There's been a lot of work anxiety And one of the things that I, you know, I love my Aquarius moon. I feel that in my otherwise really, really watery chart, um, my Aquarius moon really gives me some like perspective and some distance and some healthy dissociation. (laughs) Right. um, And I think that that energy of Aquarius could be a good, could be a good break for us. Although I also see, you know, with that, with that Mars Pluto square that's going to happen also in December, that it's not going to be, it's not going to be without, um, without some noise around it. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Um, 
I refer people to, uh, that's all great stuff. I refer people to the company of astrologers, which is, mm-hmm. um, yeah, Maggie Hyde. And she did a whole thing. Um, Oh gosh, I'm embarrassed. The the lady who really discovered some of the stuff that has led to some of the current vaccination research. I think her name was June. Oh, I don't oh, know. God. I'm so bad at this kind of thing. I know, but ch- ch- it's all on the Company of Astrologers website. But okay. she she gets into what this conjunction is going to mean, mm. especially moving into an air sign coming from yeah. Earth. So that and they um, it's some interesting stuff to, you know, mm. add on to what you're saying. But so we're running short on time. But so for people, this could be fun. But um, Britney Spears astrology and, you know, you have this is actually on, you know, the the soft aspects, soft underscore aspects on Instagram. But, you know, maybe we could just quickly um, you've got Britney's chart. Yes, I've got Britney's. I've got her. All right. I've got, pulled her up in front of me. All right, yeah, me too. So what are you, you know, let's, you know, we've got like maybe five minutes left. Let's do a few minutes on Brittany and a few minutes on Riri. What what are some of the things, themes that come to you from Brittany's chart? Sure. Well, um, this is stuff that I said on my Instagram again, but the first thing that leaps out at me about Brittany's chart is how much she is in the bottom left corner of her, right. the bottom left quadrant of her chart underneath the horizon on the left side of a chart. This is a really private chart, actually. This is a, it's it's interesting, like a Libra ascendant isn't one that I would typically consider very private. Somebody with a Sagittarius stellium, close to Sagittarius stellium, something I would call a functional stellium, isn't necessarily going to be very private. But, but, you know, there's that Jupiter and Scorpio in her second house of resources, um, and Mm -hmm. all of this chart, like underneath the horizon, very hidden. Mm -hmm. So for me, I think, I think about this line for Brittany as being like, actually wanting to keep her life kind of private, but having been very controlled. Um, And the control in her life is the big thing that's, of course, in the news a lot right now. And what I'm seeing with that is her Saturn and Pluto and Libra in her first house. That having Mm -hmm. these really scary controlling planets in the part of her chart that has to do with her own identity. Mm -hmm. One of the planets that's associated with the father is Saturn. Um, and that's yeah, that's a that's a scary that's a scary placement, and it looks like control is a really big, is a really big thematic in this person's chart. While also her being somebody who like cannot be controlled. Yeah, you know, you bring up a lot of great points. I mean, we should almost do a whole thing on. <laughs> oh, but yeah, you know, the thing that yeah, I know maybe we'll do that. Um, so the thing, one of the things to dovetail off of what you're saying, that Mars in the twelfth house, yes. and Brittany, she's always. You know, it's, you know, leave Britney alone or, you know, or just under the conservatorship of her father or just, you know, being in a fishbowl. And even some of the sort of Instagram things she puts out, it's kind of she is very isolated and that Mars just activates that. Um, And you're, Mm -hmm. you know, you, you. yeah, you bring it. I mean, it'd be interesting to look at it from, you know, a Hellenistic standpoint, but it is she's got a night chart. Yeah. Um, So the moon oversees the sect and the moon is the signifier of her mother and um it's sort of cancer 10th house stuff there Mm, um so and then the mother is really she what was her name she was always i actually you know this is funny when i was living in huh i was just trying to remember her mother's name 
I know it's it's interesting because when I lived in Queens, New York, uh, I went to the library and picked up her mother's kind of memoirs, about, which yeah, and her mother was like, "This is not my fault. Brittany wanted it oh. all." Like that's not totally oh, no. true. Okay, like that's yeah. and so so you know, but then her mother being tied up, Brittany's mother being tied up with her own creativity, but really it is about sort of, you're right, the lower two quadrants um, and then 12th house, but mm-hmm. I mean, she's got her North node in the 10th house, but a lot of it is about just herself and like yeah. siblings and family and yeah. like and children. Like it's really, that is so much dominant in her chart yeah. um, that it maybe you know, she's always kind of wanting that and it's hard to get it unless she's, kind of, you know, stuck under a conservatorship with her father, as you say, in the, you know, Saturn. Um, And, and, you know, yeah, so that, and then that, yeah, that's fourth house stuff. We look at it, you know, if you consider the fourth house father, that's her Saturn. So her father is so much a part of who she is. Mm -hmm. Okay. We could go, we could do this all day. Maybe we should, but let's, let's go to Rihanna. What do you think about Rihanna? Okay. I love Rihanna's chart. Mm -hmm. Um, I can't take credit for this one because my teacher came up with this one uh, or pointed out this one. My favorite thing about Rihanna's chart is that she has Midheaven in Capricorn mm-hmm. um, conjunct her Neptune in Capricorn. And when I think of the Neptune in Capricorn generation, um, the millennials such as myself, I think about how we are at once dedicated to work, but work also eludes us. Um, mm-hmm. So Rihanna has this Neptune in Capricorn dedicated, devoted to work, conjunct her Midheaven in Capricorn. The point of her chart that has to do with work is in the sign of work. This is a woman who wrote a song called Work. Yeah. <laughs> that's, my, that's my first absolute favorite tidbit about Rihanna's chart. Mm. Um, and then the other thing that I love is her is her Moon Venus ascendant conjunction in Aries. Right. That like this person is fiery and sensual and appears fiery and appears sensual and is vivacious and probably has a really complicated but close relationship with her mother. Well, and also, I mean, it's terrible, but um, with Chris Brown, because mm. Venus would signify him. I mean, that right. was just a terrible situation. And that's yeah. 12th house stuff. Um, yeah. And then, you know, we, we I think of her as very Piscean. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, she's so fluid, so colorful and creative, but really wonderful. And then Neptune, you know, yeah, we can get into traditional versus modern rulerships, but still, you know, that strong Neptune on the angle, getting yeah. involved with her um you know the Pisces on the 11th and 12th house yeah um yeah and I it's yeah and one one thing for people that may they might not know the famous astrologer Isabel Hickey she said you know and again there's terminology but you know a natural chart so it's Aries rising so the signs fall as they're related to that and that I know traditional astrologers don't jump me, (laughs) but you have, you know, she said, you know, we have Isabel Hickey, we have what's called a natural chart. So she's like natural, that chart can make it to the hall of fame. Like it's just for whatever reason she felt. Right. Right. That's definitely true. Yeah. And, and then maybe even, you know, and as you bring it up, the Neptune, I mean, there is somewhat of a sacrificial quality to Rihanna. I mean, this work and just sort of the the dream, she talks about the dream and living the dream and, that you know as you say the song work and all that so interesting mm-hmm. yeah and she has a foundation through her makeup company that uh, supports right. um, supports education and emergency response so right yeah i think she's yeah. great yeah no and that's interesting too cuz i actually used to be a makeup artist and that was a oh, huge cool. that was a huge deal when that line launched and cuz you know it's gotten better but you you pretty much had to be like a pro makeup artist to have access to different shades. They just weren't yeah. on the market. So yeah. 
Um, I mean, a lot of people were even surprised I had different shades. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that, I mean, this was years ago, but now it's changed and it's changing. So which is great. But um, OK, is there any this is wonderful. Is there anything else you want to say, Amelia? Um, just that I am taking suggestions on who the next uh, celebrity I should do. My, <laughs> I, I should do an astrology hot take on in my Instagram stories is next. Yeah, let me think about that. Who? Let's we can do it now. Who? Uh, okay, I have David Hasselhoff. How about David that? Hasselhoff. <laughs> what have been up to lately? I have no idea, so that's why I'd be interested to see what you have to say. And like, that's it's right. not. I look into David Hasselhoff. I was thinking of doing Lindsay Lohan, but David Hasselhoff oh, yeah. is, a re- is a real left field, so I'll take him. Yeah, I don't see. That's why these things are fun. Like quick response, what pops into your head? Yeah. Okay. All right. So get working on the and that's soft underscore aspects on Instagram. So check out, look out yeah. for David Hasselhoff. <laughs> okay. So thank you so much, Amelia. So thank this is so Dan. Much. Yeah, I really thanks so much for coming on, and you know we'll keep in touch. But um, this is Dan Beck signing off from the Star Love Podcast. And remember, if you love the stars, they'll love you back. On the next episode of the Star Love Podcast, we welcome author, teacher, and Western School of Feng Shui founder, Tara Catherine Collins. We discuss Tara's book, The Three Sisters of the Tao, her own journey with those sisters, and how you can apply some feng shui principles to your life. Please rate us on Apple Podcasts, and if you're interested in sponsoring a future podcast, email Intermakeup Business Manager James at james at intermakeup.net. To support the continued production of the Star Love Podcast, visit innermakeup.net in the leave a tip, make a wish section.